and we'll move, uh, we'll, we'll do a quick recap with 12 and kind of move on through the rest of the things that Paul is writing here in the, in the first chapter. Philippians 1, verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So once again, let me begin with verse 12 and move through this section. I want you to keep this in mind, that most have recognized that, again, the general theme of Philippians is Paul has joy in the midst of bad circumstances. So the immediate application to us and what we should be looking at is how is Paul dealing with his circumstances? How is he affected by his circumstances? And how is he choosing to look at, understand, and deal with the circumstances that he finds himself in? Remember that when it comes to the joy of the Lord, the joy of the Lord is what he provides. We cannot manufacture it. However, the joy of the Lord often comes to us as we live in obedience to what the Word of God says. Living in obedience to what the Word of God says is not only behaving morally. It does include that. But also remember that to, to live as a Christian or to live obediently also entails what we choose to think about and how we choose to think about things, how we choose to think about our circumstances, how we choose to think about our relationships, and also includes in how we respond to our circumstances and how we respond to people. So living in obedience to the word of God okay, is, is not just don't commit adultery and don't steal. That's in there. But it's also what is going on in your head? What is your attitude? Because our attitudes can be sinful. Our attitudes uh, can be that which um, is righteous. And it's our attitude that we have, that we got, he's given us, he's built us this way. We have control over that. So as we submit our minds and our hearts to what the word of God says, part of the natural byproduct of that is the attitude that we choose to have each and every day. We tend to, when things become difficult or we become rushed or we become tired or what have you, we tend to fall back to a default position, the real you, the, real, the way we really are. Now, a default position can be changed, right? but it does not change. It's the hardest thing to change. In other words, what am I naturally? So let's say I'm, I'm pessimistic naturally. Can that part of my life really be changed? Absolutely. But the way that we, that we want that to be changed is not just that I have to always think about it and muster up enough energy to always be positive. Because after a while, you're going to run out of energy. That, in, in other words, you want your mindset to change so that you become less pessimistic. You become more optimistic. Because of your understanding of what the Word of God says, 
who God is, how he guides us, how he directs us, how he's watching over us. The more we understand that, the better our outlook on life and the better our outlook on our life is going to be. So then my default position, that needle can actually move so that when I grow as a believer, things get tough, I get tired, I feel sick, the things where I would normally become, let's, let's just say, very irritable, now I'm only a little irritable. Where I would instantly become cynical, now it takes more for, it takes more of whatever's going on that's wrong to become cynical. Then as I continue to grow, those things can eventually disappear. Because you are truly changing. That change, you can't make it happen. We want it to happen, but you can't make it happen. You cannot buy a book that says, follow these 10 things, and you will no longer be cynical. That requires a change of your heart, and only God can do that. And God normally does that through a process of you and I reading the Word of God, learning the Word of God, understanding the Word of God, fellowshipping with other believers, praying for them, praying with them, them praying for us, worshiping together, working together, and through that process, we become different people. And, it's, and that's how God is, and God is in the process. So it's not just, God's just here, live in this, live in this environment and you'll become different. No, it's, it's the environment that he has created and he is, in a sense, energizing. So we want to make sure that we keep all that in mind as we read through and we, when we see what Paul, how Paul describes this. So again, Paul's in prison. The, the, now this prison, when he writes to the Philippians, this is the jail he's in is not the same kind of jail he was in when he was in Philippi. Remember when we read the story in Acts, when he was in Philippi, he was in, in the prison that they had there, the jail. Basically, his feet were chained to the floor. All right, and that, so he was stuck there. He, the, the imprisonment he has now is what we would call house arrest. But it's not the kind of house arrest we have in America. The house arrest he's under, he's in a home, but he's chained to a guard. Right, so he's, he's got a metal cuff, a little bit of chain, big soldier right next to him. And they will change the soldier, I don't know if it's every 12 hours, every 8 hours, but there's no privacy. Everything you do, he is less than 2 feet away. So you eat, pray, study, talk, private things, he's there. 24 hours a day. Um, so that's the, that's the circumstance that Paul is in. That can become irritating, right? I mean, I don't know about you, but, you know. And, and what if the soldier you're attached to doesn't even take a shower? You know, it's not like, remember now, we don't, they don't have the same kind of habits we have today. It's very different. So he, that's the situation he's in. All right, so what does he say? Brothers, I want you to know, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. That's verse 12. So the first thing he's addressing is, I know you've heard I'm in, I'm in prison. I know you're worried about me. And I want you to know the good news. He doesn't even talk about if he's suffering. His first statement is, the gospel is advancing. That's what should be on their mind and be the most important thing. And that's the most important thing on his mind, is that the gospel is advancing. What that simply means is, is those who haven't heard the gospel or don't know the gospel are hearing it and learning it. All right, number two. So that, verse 13, it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So the imperial guard is a special unit within the Roman uh, uh, army, special soldiers, hand-selected uh, to basically serve, I guess you would say, at the will of Caesar. That's kind of his inside group. 
um, to protect him, to do his bidding. Uh, after a while, the Imperial Guard actually gained a lot of political power, which is not what the Caesars wanted, but that's kind of what happened. So he's chained to these guys, and so the first thing Paul is telling him here then is this, is that all of the Imperial Guard, that's a thousand soldiers, basically they all know about Paul, because they, you know, they talk. You know, who are you chained to? <laughs> and this little Jewish guy, and he will not be quiet. <laughs> he's all religion, like, all the time. All right, but, uh, but there's people coming to see Paul. Paul is teaching them. This guy's got to hear. He's got to sit there and listen. People are going to bring Paul food. He's going to be fed as well. That's a good gig, in a sense, for these guys. And, but he wants them to know that every single Roman soldier in the guard, in this imperial guard, again, about 1,000 men, they know about Paul, and they know that he is in prison because he's a Christian. That's the, that's the most important thing to him. He's not saying, I'm innocent, and I need to be freed. He's not bitter about that, nothing. He's, he's just totally focused on, on what his responsibility is and what he, what he knows God wants to be done. So you notice then, the approach to bad circumstances is the way you look at it. He's not in denial. He's not pretending that it's not a real bummer to be chained to somebody. He, he's not, but he's not dwelling on that. What is he looking at? He is true, and he's looking at this, this is the lens of reality. Okay, so the lens of reality is, so we don't want to get this idea that somehow he's living in denial, that he's pretending that everything is hunky-dory. This is not the power of positive thinking. All right, you can buy books on positive thinking, it's a bunch of bunk. Okay, it doesn't work. All right, that's not what the Bible teaches. All right, he, ha he has made a choice, but his choice is made easier because he truly loves Christ with all his heart, mind, and soul. And he is committed to the will of God in his life. And he knows exactly what the will of God is for his life, which is to honor Christ with his life and to reach out to others with the gospel. On, in one sense, every single one of us, the, the purpose that God has for our life, there's a lot of similarities. And some of those similarities are exactly the same. We all have a responsibility to share the gospel. We can do it in different ways, but we all have that responsibility, every single one of us. So in that sense, it's the same. So when Paul writes this, he's made this assumption that the Philippian church, that they're going to be very excited about what he says. And, and they are. They're very excited about what he says. They think this is the man, this is, this is so cool. This is great. Then he goes on and says what? He says, and most of the brothers, so the word brothers there, when Paul uses that, he's talking about others who are believers. Most of the brothers having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So there's other believers living in Philippi and in different cities, because he's not in jail in Philippi. He's, uh, um, so in Ephesus and Troas and Thessalonica and all these other places. Because individuals have heard about Paul's imprisonment, and because he's in prison, and in one sense doing well, they, they have a... Uh, uh, an extra surge of boldness and courage. Basically, if Paul can do this, I can do this. If Paul is willing to go to prison, why would I not be willing to go to prison? So Paul's example, it has a positive effect on many other believers who are now emboldened to speak the gospel and not worry about whether or not they're going to be arrested and imprisoned. Not worried about that. So let's say that there's a, uh, let's say all of a sudden our government goes completely wacko, because they're partially wacko. So they go completely wacko. 
Right? And, so they, and so they state that from now on, any preacher who preaches against homosexuality is going to be guilty of hate speech and is going to be arrested. Now, that already happened. It's already happened in Canada five times. Five different guys have been arrested for that. They all released. Long story. We won't get into why. That's just what's happened. So let's just say that happens here. So the, now my approach, now this is what I'm not going to do. If I'm preaching through, let's say, I'm preaching through Matthew now, so I'm preaching through Matthew. I'm not going to next week say, you know what, because of that law, today I'm preaching a message on homosexuality. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> All right? But when it comes up, I'm not holding back. All right? So let's say that there's, because we're all, you know, pastors are human beings. Let's say some, maybe many pastors are like, oh man, I, I, I don't know what to do. I got young kids. I don't want to be arrested, right? You think about all those things. I don't want to be away from my kids. How long am I going to be in jail? I can't afford a lawyer. I mean, what is this? What's going on? All right, so let's say that when that happens, the law is, is put out. Within two weeks, you hear uh, a certain pastors, maybe you know, and they've been arrested. Oftentimes, what happens is, even though the, the government says, yeah, we've arrested these, these pastors, we want to plaster on the news because we want to send a message to get these guys to, to basically shut their mouths. Normally what happens is people go, you know what? I think this week I know what I'm going to have to say. And next thing you know, there's many, many more who are, they, they're now emboldened by that. It's just that happens. All right? And so that's what Paul is telling us there, is that his imprisonment is not bringing about the results that people think it will. There are more people who are bold. Then he gets into the details about that. Because there's different things that motivate people uh, to, uh, to do anything. But and we're talking about here about preaching the gospel. So, but he does say that they're emboldened. They do so without fear. Then he breaks it down. Verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. Now he's going to explain that in a minute. But basically what he's, he's he, you know, preachers are human beings too. They're not perfect. So some of these guys, the ones that are emboldened to preach, some of them do so because they're envious of Paul. Now, what would they be envious of? Well, it's not that they're envious of jail. You know, it's not like they're in a hurry to get there. But through all of this, Paul's become pretty popular. People like that. They, they want, they're envious. They want what Paul has. He has, it, they didn't use the word celebrity status then, but in a sense... Because he's well-known, Willis has used that word, celebrity. So they want celebrity status. All these churches are talking about Paul because he's in prison for the gospel. I want them talking about me because I'm, that's, that's what he's talking about. Yes? Isn't it possible that they were also envious of his astronomical faith? And how he uh, I mean, normally people are not envious of someone's faith, but they might be envious of the results right. of the faith. Yeah. Because if you're truly envious of the faith, he's strong in his faith. No matter of course, what oh, absolutely. Um, but normally, that's not the kind of thing we become envious about. Like for believers, we we would have incredible respect, and even say, "I'd like to have that kind of faith." Absolutely. Yeah. But I'm not. But I don't want to have it, and he and and him to not have that. Right. He has notoriety. I want the notoriety. I don't want him to have it. That's what that's what he's talking about here, and he knows that's what motivates some of these guys. Not everybody, but some of them. And then, of course, there's others who have nothing but goodwill. They love Paul, they love Christ, they love the gospel. So he's going to break it down some more. Verse 16. 
The latter, that's the ones who do it from goodwill, do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. So they love Paul, they love Christ, they love the gospel. That's what motivates them. And Paul is really happy about that. But Paul is also happy about something else, but he's also honest about it. And what is that? The former, that's the one who's, who do it out of envy and rivalry. The former proclaim Christ out of what? Selfish ambition. So he's describing their attitude. They're envious. They're, they see themselves as rivals of Paul. And that's because they have selfish ambition. And we're told in the Bible to not have selfish ambition. So um, in some circles, this, this, in the, when, I, when I say so, some circles of preachers, this can happen or there's this attitude that can take place. So, so if, let's say I'm reading about John MacArthur. Okay, John MacArthur's been a pastor for 50 years, I think, at the church he's at. It's just, and he's a terrific preacher. All right, so he has a congregation of like 12,000 people that, that go there. All right, it's not a, it's not a uh, um, seeker-friendly church. It's, they're still with the gospel and, and the whole deal. But, so there are some individuals, they, 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 they are jealous of that. They don't want him to have that. They want to have that. What all they see is John MacArthur this, John MacArthur that. So they think he's orchestrating all these things because he wants all this self-praise. He doesn't want any of that. He didn't even care about it. And that's how he is, okay? There's several preachers that are very well known that are like that. Some aren't, but there are some that are. So the bottom line is, is that there are some preachers, they want to grow their church, but they don't want to grow their church because they necessarily want to, get, want to see people get saved. They will say that, but what is in their heart? See, God knows what's in their heart. You may not even be able to tell, but in their heart, it's, yeah, my church has grown by 300%. My church has a thousand new members. My, you know, there's a, that happens. Okay, it, it goes on. There's no way to get around it. It doesn't mean that they're, it doesn't mean they've lost their salvation. You can't lose it. It doesn't mean that these individuals are somehow super evil, but they are human beings, right? And it's something that, that they definitely have to keep in check because if they don't, there's going to be a problem. But Paul states here that these individuals are driven by selfish ambition and then adds to it, not sincerely, they're not sincere, but they're thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So this goes back to this, to this envy thing. What, the, what some of them actually want to do is they, they want to be notorious for being in prison for the gospel because they think somehow it will hurt Paul. That's what they want to do. They want, in their mind, if I become well-known for this and Paul becomes less known for this, then Paul will no longer have an audience and he will realize that he's not the big man, he's not important, and he'll basically diminish. That's just, that's just evil. That's what they want. More power? Uh, to a degree, yeah, because power, so, yeah, this, yeah, because sometimes just having greater influence would be considered more power, and that's true. But, it, but it's all about them. But it, and it's not about just having big numbers only for themselves. They want that. But it's also to cause him agony. They want him to, be, and I guess the reason why they would think that is because we tend to think people are always like us. So what they're really revealing is, is that if that was happening to me, I'd be upset. So he must be like me because he's a human being. So this is gonna, of course, Paul, he don't care. 
which he'll tell you. He doesn't care. All right, which is truly amazing. So that, but he knows, he knows what they're doing. He knows. There's no secret here. All right. So he says this. He says, what then? When he says, what then? He says, so what are we going to do about this? Here, he's laid out the truth about these individuals who are preaching the gospel. Some, it's a good thing. Some, their motives are completely wrong. And how does Paul describe this? You know, because the idea, you know, they, they think they want to, you know, they, they think somehow that he's going to suffer through this. He says, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So really, in the end, all he cares about is that. So, it, so I guess in modern day language, it would be like this. So there are some preachers that, are, that may be really well known, and they may do things, or they may have something about their personality that, when I say it's kind of questionable, it's, I don't mean immoral. I don't mean, I would just say this, ah, there's still a little bit too much ego there. So they're not, like, they're not bragging and trying to parade, parade themselves around as being like, I'm the man. But there's still a little bit of arrogance there. That, you know, maybe a little, it's subtle, but it's there. All right? So the bottom line is, then with all that is this, is that, so, so I may see that, and I may be so bothered by that, that I then, even, because this happens to preachers, they get a little upset that anyone's coming to Christ. I can't see how anybody can come to Christ with that clown preaching. Can't they see his arrogance? It's all over the place. And it may not be that obvious, but the bottom line is that now you're upset that people are getting saved. Now, who, guess who has the problem? Because the, the key is what? It's the message. The messengers of the gospel have always been flawed people, except for Christ. They're, they're flawed. They have problems with their ego. Some of them are selfish. You know, they all, like everyone else, they need to grow as Christians. They are not perfect people by any means. We, we want them to um, exude righteousness and holiness and need to be pursuing that. All right, but the bottom line is, is we know that they're going to, they may, they're, they're going to break a promise. They're going to let people down. They're going to forget to do things. It's whatever that's going to happen. Paul's main concern here. So he says, all these people do all these things because they want to make my situation worse. And I'll tell you what, they're preaching the gospel and that is, that's what he's happy about. So he's never saying that whatever's wrong with him is okay. But it's not his focus. That's not his responsibility to deal with. It's God's business. He's in prison, but he's happy. So he wants them to, to know that. So, again, what that helps us to see then is that because sometimes we might be handling bad circumstances pretty well, but sometimes we come across people who maybe we have a, maybe a little bit of conflict with, and maybe they seem to be a little bit happy that we're having a hard time, and we get all worked up about it. Don't get worked up about it. Why? why, why? People are, uh, this is, you can't change them. You can't, you can't make them do or be anything. It's not a thing. Our focus should be on the Lord. And so that's very hard. All right, we're human beings, that's hard. That may be one of the hardest things, especially if there's already some conflict there and you already don't like him a little bit. Then it becomes really hard, right? You just, uh, you know, if they're happy that you're not happy, 
Now I'm really not happy. All right, so that's kind of what's going on. So, but Paul, he, eh, his focus is on the gospel, which is, which is an amazing thing. So we see that so there's a discipline then to his submission to the word of God. His, submission, his, his discipline is, is our obedience to the word of God should not be dependent upon our circumstances. And because it is for a lot of people. When things go well, I follow what the Bible says. Things get rough, I got to figure out what to do. Right? You know, it's like, well, how, how can I manipulate this situation? How can I do this? How can I? We, we need to submit to what the Bible says. Always. Period. Right? In your marriage, if your spouse is not treating you the way you want to, and you've been going to church and praying and everything's been going great, and then all of a sudden, you know, whatever has happening, and we start trying to figure out, well, what can I do to get them to do what I want? Just continue to follow what the Bible says, love them, serve them, but what happens is, is we're not patient, we don't really trust God to do that, or we don't want to wait, and so we want to handle the situation ourselves, and so we want to find a way to push, or how to, whatever it happens to be, and, so, and that can be hard, and so... We want to make sure then that regardless of our situation, right? So let's say you're at work. You want to get a promotion. Let's say that you are number that in your mind, and maybe you're correct, you should be first in line for the promotion. If, as you've been working at this company, let's say for five years, you, you, you have exhibited Christian character in everything that you do and how you treat everyone, even, the, even people there that don't like you. Uh, the bottom line is it's kind of like what Peter says. Peter says that if, people, if the world speaks evil of you, basically make sure they have to make it up. Because they, if, they, if they speak evil of you about what you've really done, you're not suffering, really. You're, that's just the consequences of your evil deeds. So that's not a thing. All right? Make sure they have to make it up. So what happens is, is now it's time for where they're going to start to begin to do interviews for that job. And you notice a couple of other individuals who are maybe after you, they're in the same, uh, they're competing for that, for that promotion like you are. And now you start to worry they might get a step ahead. And so there's this temptation. Because you know some things about them that not, not, they're not doing anything illegal, but you know they're not exactly perfect. So you start trying to figure out how in the course of conversations can I drop hints of these things they've done, hoping it would make its way up to whoever's doing the interview so, that, so I will look better. Why are you doing that? You don't have to do that. Just continue to live the way you lived before. If you don't get it, the Lord is not sitting in heaven saying, oh, they gave it to someone else. That, God would never do that. All right? It's going to go to God is the one who's in charge of all of these things. Who knows what he has on the horizon for you? Some people have said this. Well, yeah, you're right. Because the Lord, he, he probably has something better. Maybe. It is not in the Bible. That if you miss a promotion, that means God has something better for you. It's not in there. What he wants is our obedience. Besides, how do we even determine what's better? Something better may not be more money. Something better may not even be working there. Maybe it's working somewhere else. All right? Maybe it's staying in the position you're in because there's someone who's going to be hired in a year from now. And the only way that individual is going to be with you and talk to you is if you have the same job you have now. 
And so don't go around and start whining and complaining that you didn't get the promotion because God has a plan for all of this and there's this individual that needs your counsel that you haven't met yet. You don't know that. We're supposed to be trusting God to handle everything. So we need to continue to live and trust the Lord. Um, so, and just keep this in mind. If it's not God's will for you to get a promotion, there's no way you're going to get it. If it is God's will for you to get the promotion, who can stop you? So you don't have to worry about it. Right? Let him take care of it. He, he's been doing it for quite a while now, and he does pretty good. Uh, and remember, he is omnipotent. Nothing can stop his way from happening. So again, what does Paul say? What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Then he says, yes, and I will rejoice, um, for I know, verse 19, that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. So, he wants him to understand that their involvement in what's going on is a very real thing. So he talks about them praying for him. When he talks about them praying for him, again, what we need to understand is that it's not just about um, going through the motions of praying because it sounds spiritual. But we need to remind ourselves that prayer is a real thing. Right? So in the same way that you may verbalize the gospel to an individual. So we are doing something, we're communicating to them, and because of what we're doing, there's, there may be, there's going to be some kind of response, whether it's good, bad, or indifferent. But there's going to be some kind of response. And we feel kind of good because we've done something. And we sometimes think that if we're praying over here, maybe in our home where no one else knows, we're not really doing anything. Okay, that's, just, that's not a Christian view. We're, we're only speaking to the God of creation who wants to answer our prayers and who enjoys working through our prayers and has asked us to pray and commanded us to pray and says that this communication that we're involved in is one of those things that not only reveals our active dependence upon God, but it's how this whole, you know, it's how we are kind of knit together. Right? When you are praying for someone on a regular basis and God answers that prayer, you are going to feel happiness for that individual. Right? And you might even feel like they had a hand in it, which you did, if you've been praying for it. I think you've heard the story before. There's a lot of stories like this. D.L. Moody was, was an individual who um, was invited to a place to preach. He didn't really want to go, but he went because he was obligated. He went there. He said when he went to preach in the city, he said it, didn't, it just didn't feel right. It didn't feel the same. He, just, he wasn't energized. And when he went and preached that night, everybody was like, they were just like, you know, and so all that's going on. And but then, after, then when he finishes preaching and he's talking about the need that people have for to come to Christ, there's people coming all over the place, wanting to, to know more about the gospel and, and believe in Christ. And he he can't believe this. And so he's talking later, hours later, to the pastor because they didn't get home until real late. And he just says, "I just," he says, I, "I feel I have to ask God to forgive me because I I thought this 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 and I just couldn't believe it." And, and the pastor said, well, there's someone I want you to meet tomorrow. Uh, and that they, this person may have part of the answer to why all this took place. And so the next day they go and he takes them to go. It was a, a young lady who was uh, kind of an invalid. And she was all excited to meet him. And she told him that she'd been praying. She showed him her journal every day for three years. 
that she would come to the church, he would come to the church and pray, that he would come to the church and preach, and that, there would, and that God would touch the lives of the people there. They were her friends, some of them were her family members, she knew they weren't believers, she knew that when they would, if they died, they would go to hell, and what could she do? She's an invalid, you know, they're not coming to see her, you know, there's no telephones back then in 1800s, you know, when this was going on, so there was no way to reach them. So there you are, stuck in this place, people bring you your food, someone comes to help you bathe, there's nowhere for you to go, what do you do? And so she prayed, believing that God would answer her prayer, she prayed specifically that God would bring this man, D.L. Moody, to this church, and she prayed that every day for three years, he came, and there was this, as I mentioned to you, what took place, and then there were literally hundreds of individuals who gave their life to Christ. And she was just overjoyed. And so at that, uh, D.L. Moody said he felt about that big. Um, and it really considered an honor to meet her. Um, tell you another story. It's a story of a man who was uh, John Bunyan. Was that 1600s? Mm -hmm. 1600s. John Bunyan was a man who was preaching in England. And he was not preaching in a church, and in England it was illegal to preach outside. You had to preach in a church, because you had to be sanctioned by the church. We really wasn't into all that. He was preaching. A lot of people wanted to hear him preach and explain the gospel, and he did. And so he was, they finally had to shut him up, so they arrested him. They put him in prison. And uh, he ended up being in prison really for a, a real long time. There was, he was let off a while, and then they rearrested him, and he went, he went back. But it was, it's John Bunyan, and the reason why this is important is because he, he wrote more than one book, but he wrote a pretty important book when he was there, and that's the book that's known as Pilgrim's Progress. And for many years, besides the Bible, the number one selling book on the planet was Pilgrim's Progress. It, it is an amazing thing. He wrote that when he was in prison. He ended up, through that book, touching the lives of literally thousands of people for hundreds of years because he was in prison. So being in prison is not always a bad thing. I think in your notes, um, I, did, I just did a quick uh, look on the best-selling individual books. So the Bible is number one, 6.7 billion. Then there's the Quran, 3 billion. Uh, there's a book, of, uh, a little red book by Chairman Mao. Uh, just so you know, though, it, wasn't, uh, it didn't sell 900 million copies because it was so popular. Um, the, communi the communist China ordered everyone to buy one. <laughs> so it kind of, it's pretty good for sales uh, when that happens. Uh, Don Quixote, 500 million. Uh, then again, selected articles of Chairman Mao, again, that thing. And then Pilgrim's Progress, 250 million copies of that book have been sold. Who knows how many people have read that book because you can get it online, for, you can read it online for free. Uh, I mean, it's just, it's insane. All right, that book still to this day affects hundreds, if not thousands of people, helping them either to become believers or to grow in their faith as Christians. Um, I have bribed my grandchildren to read it. Uh, I think four have. Found a really good English translation. Um, and it was 50 bucks if they read it. Uh, I just told them they had, to, they had to talk to me afterwards just so I could tell that they actually read it. Um, and then I did, I did what was exciting for them, because they were young, I paid them with $51 bills. <laughs> so they get a wad of cash, and they think they have just made it. <laughs> but that's okay. It's an investment, all right, in their lives. So, you know, this whole being in prison thing, uh, 
can be a, a marvelous thing. God can use individuals no matter where they're at. So whether you're John Bunyan or Paul, and, and remember, when John Bunyan was writing Pilgrim's Progress, he wasn't a famous guy. He's famous now because of all this what happened. Very few people, I mean, there was a few hundred people who knew who he was and knew he was in prison, but nobody, nobody knew who he was. But his name became pretty well known, which wasn't why he wrote the book. You know, he didn't say, you know, I'll be famous. I want everyone to know that I've been treated unjustly. So I'm going to write a book. I'm going to write a book about the Christian life. No, that's not what he did. He just wrote what was in his heart. I obviously had a very vivid, incredible imagination. Um, obviously, he had to be unbelievably talented to do that. Writing a book is not easy. Uh, to write a book that's engaging, that is that. The word, I, I, I don't want to use the word complicated, but there has to be another word. Um, uh, it's, a, it's a complex story, which means it has depth. Uh, that too, you could use that term. There's a lot of things about it that, that make it something that, that uh, um, is engaging, kind of draws you in. Um, and uh, so if you've not read it, you should read it. Uh, I would just say don't get the original because it's in King James English and that's really hard to get through unless you're used to it. So, but there is a modern, uh, there's many modern translations, but you want, the biggest modern translation you can get. Basically, that means they didn't take anything out. <laughs> All right, you want to get a big, thick one. All right, I can't remember the guy's name that translated it. And when I say translate, it's not like going from German to English. It's from English to English, but so, so you can read it. Huh? Where should we look for when we're looking for that book? Uh, Pilgrim's Progress in Modern English. Modern. That's what you should look for. Did and we get then, uh, book? No. Nope. <laughs> well, you might, but not for me. <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, it's, it's, and if you have children, grandchildren, it's a great book to even read to them. And, it is, and just so you know, if they're in elementary school, it is not above their understanding. Because we did children's camp two years in a row, and I read, I read it to the children. I read the first half one, in one year, which every day, several times a day for the week, and then finish up the next week. And then I would quiz them. Before, I, before every reading session, I would talk about what I had just read. And I would ask them details, the names of characters, you know, when this happened, you know, I would ask, and they, and what was even more amazing was the next year, when I'm going to read the rest of it, the ones who had been at the previous camp, I asked a few questions about what had happened in the first part of the book, I was blown away. They, had, they were like spot on with the answers. It was unbelievable. Um, so uh, kids, man, they can get it. Don't ever underestimate kids. Isn't there a children's uh, version of it? There is. So if they're real, real young, you can get a children's version. Yeah. And that's okay. I would get the one that's got the best illustrations. <laughs> Just because they're really cool. Which one, which one are you looking at? It's considered the most famous. I thought it was. I saw I looked it up. Most famous allegory. Yes, it is. So that's why. Uh, and it's, got, it's sold to the people who aren't even Christians because it's Oh, yeah. Absolutely. It's just, yeah. People who are non-believers like it. Um, I had the inmates in my program once read, read through that book. Not they all didn't read it, but a lot of them did. Anyway, all of that to say, go back to uh, what we have here in Philippians. I have to get to a certain uh, place in my notes because I just whizzed right through them, which is okay. Uh, but I wanted to get, I wanted to discuss something with you. 
First things first. Again, uh, the end of verse 18 and verse 19 and verse 20. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it has my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So, uh, this is a, a, a quote from John MacArthur. He says this, One of the surest measures of spiritual maturity is what it takes to rob you of your spirit-bestowed joy. Um, Paul's maturity is evident in this text as he makes it clear that difficult, unpleasant, painful, life-threatening circumstances do not rob him of joy, but rather cause it to increase. Although it is a gift from God to every believer and administered by the Holy Spirit, joy is not always constant and full. The only certain cause for loss of joy in a believer's life is their sin, which corrupts his fellowship with the Lord, who is the source of joy. Such sinful attitudes as dissatisfaction, bitterness, sulliness, doubt, fear, and negativism cause joy to be forfeited. Consequently, the only way to restore lost joy is to repent and return to proper worship and obedience to God. Anything other than sin, no matter how difficult, painful, disappointing, uh, need not take away the believer's joy. Yet even minor things can do so if believers react sinfully to them. A change for the worse in health, job, finances, personal relationships, and other important areas of life can easily cause believers to question the Lord, his sovereign wisdom, and his gracious provisions. Provision. When that happens, joy is one of the first casualties. Believers are especially vulnerable when such things happen suddenly, taking them off guard. Their response is often one of anger, doubt, distrust, fear, self-pity, ingratitude, or just plain complaining. In such cases, events that are not sinful in themselves lead, for sinful, lead to sinful responses that steal joy. So the joy we have in the Lord and the way that we respond to circumstances reveals our level of maturity in our walk with the Lord. And if you think about it, that's, that's what makes sense, right? When you watch your children, and when the way your child responds to a situation will reveal their maturity level, right? So if your son or daughter is 12, and something doesn't go their way, and they are lying in the middle of the living room floor, kicking and screaming, then we would gather that they're pretty immature. Because we expect the 12-year-old to not do that, right? Three, that's what three-year-olds do. It's not what a 12-year-old does, okay? So the way that they are responding to an adverse situation reveals where their maturity level is. So then, it's the same thing for everyone as adults even. So as a believer, the way we respond. So normally, we're not going to lie on the middle of the floor kicking and screaming, all right? But we can do that figuratively. We can feel sorry for ourselves. We can complain. There's all kinds of things that we can do. And all of that is a sinful response to what happens. Nowhere in here, and Jesus doesn't do this as well, nowhere in here does it say that bad circumstances or bad events are either imaginary or not really as bad as we think. The Bible never diminishes pain, 
bad circumstances, those kinds. It never says it's not that bad. It doesn't do that. But it does, God does demand that we respond, and we would say it this way, in faith. What does that mean? Right? It's not just some spiritual word. To respond in faith means I am what? Trusting God and trusting what he says, trusting in who he is. He is sovereign. He is powerful. He is righteous. He does what is good. Everything is in his hands. Uh, his will is going to be done. I made, he's never made a, he's never made it, it's not a hidden thing that, that what he does is not always going to please us. Because it's just going to happen. Because, I mean, think about it. Who in your family is going to die? Everyone. Right? Until the Lord returns, everyone in your family is going to die. Everyone. That happens to everybody. There's no promise in the Bible that any of us are exempt from any of the hardships of life. It's not in there. He has promised he'd never leave us alone in it. He's promised that. One of the amazing, thing, one of the amazing things about little kids is this. When, and people notice this all the time. When little kids go through really bad things, cancer, uh, catastrophic death in the family, um, those types of things, almost always, little kids don't ever say, why me? They don't. The most important thing to them is they are with mom or dad or both. It's all that matters. Right? It's all that matters. And they're fine. When I used to have to take my kids to the doctor or to the hospital, depending on what happened, whatever was going on, I never once had my kids ask me, Dad, why did God let me break my collarbone? They never asked that. They never said, Dad, why is God making me feel pain from this shot? They never once said that. They did say, are you going to be with me? Yep, I'm going to be there. Or mom would be there. I normally was the one that would take them, but, you know, that's just how it was. All right, but I said, yeah, I'm going to be there. And I would, sometimes I would tell them. I said, ah, you know what, like, well, my, my one son, he had broken his collarbone. I said, this is what's going to happen. We're going to go to the doctor's going to feel him around. He's, he's, he's going to want to know by touch where it hurts. And then we'll take an x-ray, take a picture of your bones, and we're going to do this and this and this and this. And so we went, and that's what happened. He, all he said was, are you going to be there? Yeah. Okay. So when the doctor touched his collarbone where it was broken, it hurt. But he was okay. I was there. Then later on, then the weird thing was, later on, he, we had to take him back. A couple years later, he broke his wrist. Same thing, tell us what's going to happen. So he put his hand out. The doctor's feeling around. And he just, he just looks at the doctor the whole time. And the doctor says, well, I think I can tell where it's broken. We have to take an x-ray. So we go to the, to the x-ray room. And so I asked him, I said, Josh, I, when I was doing that, I know where it hurts. Because I could tell, you told me. When he did it, you didn't say a word. Why didn't you tell him? That's what he said. I didn't want him to know. <laughs> what does that even mean? You know, <laughs> so kids, kids can do all kinds of things. But the bottom line is, is what kids, I think, maybe intuitively understand, is that all this pain and difficulty is a part of life. They're not questioning any of that. They're not, you know, they're not like, oh, where is God and all of this? Are you going to be there? And what God has promised us is He would be there.
And he has told us that there's going to be the pain in life. And he has told us there's a day when it's going to be gone. Until then, he'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us. That's good news. And so that, and that has everything to do with the joy that we have. So one of the things that we have on the world is the world does experience temporary joy. They do. The, the, the world is able to even experience happiness on a high level. <laughs> we, we, we're not going to deny that. Deep down inside, when, when, it just, when the world keeps kicking you, in whatever way it is, where do you find your comfort, your satisfaction, your source of joy? I don't know where they get it from. They may think they get it from a bottle, and they, but they don't, right? They may think they get it from a needle or in other ways, but, but they don't. You can temporarily be um, numb, but nothing changes. It just makes everything worse. Right? So where do they go? I, I don't know. They don't have anywhere to go. We do. God really does exist. God really does answer prayer. Paul has, when Paul says what he says about prayer, he's not just trying to make, it, make them feel better because they can't be there with him. And he says, oh, yeah, you've really helped me out by praying. No, he is like, no. This is an answer to your prayers. You pray for me. You pray for this. This is what's happening. You need to rejoice. And you know, here, here's this guy who's in prison, and he's saying, you need to rejoice. It's like when you go see somebody who has cancer, and they're hurting, and they go, why aren't you happy? Well, what do you mean, why am I not happy? I, I, I'm happy. No, you're not happy. All right? We, we, we want to be that individual who has that inner, that inner source, that strength, and that comes through the relationship we have with Christ. And so that's why, again, we want to make sure that we're not just paying lip service to God, that we really know who he is, we're growing in that, and that's what Paul is dealing with here. So we'll end with that, and we'll pick it up here, uh, because we want to make sure we talk a little bit about when Paul makes this statement here, when he says that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ has returned out for my deliverance, some translations say this was not for my salvation. What does he mean by that? Because right? I think it's important for us to grasp what he means by that phrase. Uh, and I believe it will help us a great deal. And also, again, help us to kind of peel back the layer of the onion to see what his mind is and how he's approaching life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we thank you for your grace and kindness and love. We thank you, Father, for your ongoing presence in our life. We thank you, Lord, that even though we're not always like cognizant of your presence, we know, Lord, that you are with us because you promised us you would be. We know, Lord, that you are sovereignly acting in our life, even the times when we don't really see it. But we know, Lord, and we have great confidence in you and in what you're doing. And we pray, Father, you would help us to continue to grow in our faith so that we will trust you as we ought to. We thank you, Father, for the very real joy that you give us, that you provide for us. So, Father, we ask that you will guide us, you will direct us, you will help us in all of our circumstances, that we may glorify you in the way that we are living. We ask now, Lord, that you would dismiss us with your blessing as we go home, keep us safe, and we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.